0: feels like npr (laughs) you listen to a lot of npr i wake up to it normally really then i fall back asleep (laughs) and dream that the muppets or somebody is telling me the news
1: (laughs) (laughs) photography in one form or another exerts a great influence on our daily lives an illustrative photographer must be imaginative
0: Sometimes I think about it as having a a right balance of logic and emotion. Like if it's too much on the, the clever side, it doesn't work. And if it's too much on the sentimental side, it doesn't work. And there's somewhere in between that it needs to fall.
2: I'm Jordan Weitzman, and this is Magic Hour, the show that delves into the minds of photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. Today I speak with Jason Fulford, one of the most important working contemporary photographers. Jason has published five of his own photo books, including Sunbird, The Mushroom Collector, and Hotel Oracle, in addition to over 40 books of other artists' work that he's published under the imprint that he co founded JL Books. He has done editorial work for Aperture, Harpers, and The New Yorker, and his photographs have appeared on the book covers of Ernest Hemingway, Vladimir Nabokov, and Don DeLillo's books. In 2014 he was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, one of the most prestigious awards offered in the arts. He's using it to pursue his next book project on the theme of madness. Jason's work creates unusual connections that weave together the playful and the profound in a way that subtly observes both the humor and sadness in life. What keeps me going back to his books is that they don't resolve themselves. You can pick one of them up from time to time, And always see something new. I visited Jason in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where he lives with his wife, artist Tamara Shopson, in an old carriage house that they bought and converted into their home. The space that they created together very much resembles both of their work. Intelligent yet playful. Refined but unpretentious.
0: My mom put me in a photo class when I was 11 years old. And I loved it we would shoot and go into the lab develop the film make a print all in the same day that seemed really fast at the time and i think i also always loved that you could go in the dark room and make a a print that was the same quality as something you would find in a museum somewhere but you could do it at home or you could do it all in a day like that and so i started taking pictures then i think one of my first one of my first pieces was an assignment for that class and i did a slideshow about our basset hound whose name was honey and i set it to the music of um linda ronstadt singing uh, i've got a crush on you <laughs> uh-huh yeah did you grow up in an artistic family mm, my dad is a was a businessman and my mom she was actually a photographer but she took you know amateur classes And then she did a little bit of professional work, but at the time that was things like um, photographing architectural drawings to make prints for presentations. Does she still do that? No, she doesn't really take pictures at all anymore. There was one moment she was in the Atlanta airport and she had a whole bag of cameras and lenses and it was stolen at the gate Wow! plane. I don't think she ever really got into it again after that.
2: So you grew up in Atlanta, and at one point you
0: you moved away, right? Yeah, so I I continued taking pictures all through high school. And uh, my photo teacher encouraged all of us actually to apply for this national talent search that Pratt Institute would do every year. I don't know if they still do it. And so I sent in some slides, and I, I got first place. And so they offered me a full ride. Wow i think my dad didn't want me to go or i thought maybe i'll just go for a year and then go do business school and he said you know i don't want you to waste a year now so i decided not to do art school at all and to go to to business school and then i went to tell my photo teacher and it was the first time he ever like cursed me out he basically said get the fuck out of the room like i don't want to see you like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Huh. Like, you're going to turn this down. And that really jarred me. So I took the scholarship, and I went straight to Pratt. So that was 1991. I moved huh. to Brooklyn. It's a good use of curse words. If you only use them <laughs> when you really mean them, Yeah, uh, then they'll be taken more seriously.
2: Were you looking at a lot of work at that time? Like, a lot of uh,
0: a lot of other photography? I think the early Twin Palms books were on my bookshelves. Just some classics. At Jay, Paul Strand. Hmm. There was a book by a German called Ute Berend. Her book had a huge effect on me. It was called Girls, Some Boys and Other Cookies. and um, It was a book of full color, full bleed pictures and super colorful images of people and, and places. And I remember picking it up and looking at it and kind of hating it. But for some reason I looked through it again and then a third time and then a fourth time and then it became my favorite book for a while and the thing I learned from that was how pictures can speak to each other because each spread is is kind of an autonomous unit in that book each double-page spread so it's two pictures basically having a conversation with each other right that's probably the book that had the biggest influence on me huh were you into other art at the time I don't know. I was looking at all sorts of stuff, and I feel like those years were... I think my philosophy in school was work through ideas and throw everything away. Like, I didn't take care of anything that I made at school. I hmm. just realized, I like, thought, this is this is bad and ugly, and I'm working through something. Do you still kind of have a bit of that philosophy with your work? I think when I'm out taking pictures, I forget immediately what I've just shot. Like, I remember it when I look at the contact sheets. Yeah, I mean, I love doing crossword puzzles. There's a similar philosophy there. Like You you work really hard, and, and then you finish this thing, and then you throw it away. Mm-hmm. But when you
2: work on a book project, do you feel like you have to work through lots of edits and lots of
0: iterations before you come to the final version? Yeah, every book I've made has like a whole bookshelf of uh, mock-ups. It's always ugly and you're slowly making it into something good. But just by looking at it and having a reaction to it, it's not like a recipe was set out ahead of time and then you just follow the recipe. Right. Um, At some point, a project takes on a subject. And then at that point, I'm collecting images kind of randomly through my life experience that relate to that topic. It's just like... um, what do they call it at the NSA? Like the big data sweep or something. <laughs> and then the editing phase is, is finding a point of view within that. And you're using the images to then articulate that point of view. So it, in a way, it's like the first part is, is getting all of the vocabulary into one space. And then the second part is writing it. Mm-hmm. If you switch the order around, you're saying something different. Right. I mean, all of the questions and all of the answers come out of the work itself. So you're in school in New York in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. What do you do after that? I worked in a graphic design studio for two years. It was a guy called Michael Rambo. One of his big clients was Fox Lorber. They were a video distribution company. So we did a lot of video box covers, which was really fun. Which ones, like, really stick out? I did a lot of the Eric Romer movies. Oh, yeah. uh, John Cassavetes. But then he also had another client that did kind of um, softcore porn movies. Oh, yeah. I remember there was one vampire lesbian cover that I did (laughs) where I had to Photoshop. So we would get the images from the stills from the film on 35 millimeter transparencies that we would have to have scanned into the computer, and then we would manipulate whatever. And I remember at some point, one of my jobs was going through a lingerie catalog, scanning lingerie and photoshopping it onto these (laughs) models from the stills from the movie. (laughs) I had a really, really good time. I I worked there for two years, and at some point in the second year, I just started getting restless. I wanted to make my own work, and I wanted to travel. So uh, I bought a motorcycle, and I quit that job, and I just took off and um i haven't had a job since then
2: <laughs> was it a scary thing it wasn't uh,
0: scary there was no f- there, there was no ambivalence about it like should i shouldn't i no like you knew it's something you needed to do yeah i don't have a lot of fear now even but i think i had even less than mm-hmm. in a lot of ways i mean when i would go out i would hitchhike sometimes i would i would sleep in tents on gas station parking lots behind billboards whatever really yeah, I mean, I would <laughs> just sleep wherever was. you had to go to sleep, so you'd okay. up the tent and go to sleep there. Okay. I remember one trip to Poland. I was hitchhiking around, and I had set up in this park somewhere in this town called Jaroczyn. And I wanted a motorcycle to drive around Poland, so I went to the... This was pre-cell phone, pre-internet. And I remember going to the town square. There was like a... Uh, community bulletin board and I had a bullish English English dictionary and I found there was a listing for a motorcycle for sale so I went over to that person's house because the address was listed and uh his sister was there and he was a welder and I was a welder at the time too same age that so was interesting and she said he's at work so but you can hang out here till he gets back so I sat there with her and her kid for a while eating uh, <laughs> tomato sandwiches and coffee (laughs) and he said yeah i have a motorcycle for sale but it's broken and i said well why don't i just pay to fix it and then i'll use it for a few weeks and then i'll give it back to you and i think he really had his eye on this other bike that he wanted so he Mm -hmm. was like no no it's not worth fixing but i have this this other bike for sale that i want to get so i said well maybe let's split the cost of it and then i'll use it and then i'll give it back to you so we went over to this his friend's house. It was one of those old sort of communist style apartment blocks, mm-hmm. and they had a garage in the back, communal garage, and we went, and it was this bike called a Java J A W A Czech bike, mm-hmm. and um, so we went upstairs, and you, you have to like sit and do some shots of grain alcohol with the guy's dad you know, before you do the <laughs> negotiation. Par for the course for that's this pretty kind wild of negotiation. So anyway we ended up getting the bike. Uh-huh. And then that was that was a long day. And then I was like, I'm gonna go go back to my tent to go to sleep and he was like, Where are you camped out? I said, This park over there. He was like That's really dangerous over there. You might get killed. Do <laughs> you do it anyways? Yeah. Yeah, it was fine. Right. No fear. That's why we, that's why you got onto it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No fear. Right. So it wasn't scary to leave that job. It felt, it was actually really liberating. It felt amazing to just head out. And I think that was that time in my life, which is probably common with certain like young men where you, you want to, you kind of want to just be alone in the middle of nowhere, wandering. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: So this, that was like
0: your first big road trip that you did. Like it was a cross country. What was the trip? It was like a vertical cross country. So I... Drove up to the headwaters of the Mississippi River in Minnesota mm-hmm. and followed it down to New Orleans, mm-hmm. kind of zigzagging through the Midwest. And when was that like? It was amazing. I felt like I was on a treadmill with uh, the world just like flying past me. It felt like I would go through these towns and take with me everything that I thought was beautiful, basically, like within pictures. Mm-hmm. Were you reading a lot? Yeah. At the time, I was reading, like, Don DeLillo, Thomas Pynchon. Which ones? Crying of Lot 49, White Noise. Do you feel like that um, they influenced the way you were seeing? Definitely. Yeah. Their characters and make, made the world feel like it was full of, like, mysterious signs, mm-hmm. open metaphors. Right. This is the
2: trip that led to Sunbird, your first book, mm-hmm. right? Did you have that book in mind while you were, while you were on this trip? Did Not you... really.
0: I just wanted to make a lot of pictures. I mean, I, I wanted to make a book, so yeah, that was kind of the default place where it would go. I mean, what that ended up leading to was my friend Leanne Shapton, who's the L of J&L Books. While we were at Pratt, we dated for a while, and then we split up, and then we became like best friends. Mm-hmm. And so, a couple of years later, when the when the Sunbird was made, I remember going to Toronto. She's Canadian. Yeah, and um, showing her the book and saying like, "Look, I know how to make a book now." Because we had always talked about doing some kind of thing together where we would make stuff, and and so it became that we made printed matter. Mm-hmm. So we started JNL at that point. So that was the first JNL book. Yeah, I think Adam Gilders and I—he—he—he he, he made all of the wrote all of the fiction in the book. I think we called ourselves Bird Entertainment, uh-huh. at the publishing company. Yeah. And then we said that it was distributed by JNL, and JNL that was the first ISBN that we did. Huh. JNL. How did that the image text combination come about? I think it was through my friendship with Adam. He was a writer, and somehow the thing, the writing that he was making and the pictures I was making, had some kind of connection. We called it a hovering quality, like it just never quite sat down on the ground. It was always just a slightly open. Had an open quality to it. Mm-hmm. And so we would correspond through the mail. I would send him images and he would write back with postcards. And hmm. his po- his fiction was really short. He was reading a lot of Lydia Davis and Bartholomew at the time. And I think we did that for a year or so. Hmm. And then we edited it together. I th- at some point, I was hitchhiking around the Southwest and I went through Santa Fe and met Jack Woody from Twin Palms talked to him for a while and and hung out some and showed him some work and i remember him saying you should just publish this yourself you have a design background you know how to do it nobody knows who you are this work doesn't have any kind of a hook that's going to make it sell. so nobody is going to publish it Mm -hmm. and um and then he had just found this printer in in south korea who I use to this day actually but he he had just found out about them and said I'm gonna I'm gonna give him a few books to print why don't you throw your book into the mix you can pay for it but I'll introduce you to this printer that was nice of him yeah that was really great he Hmm. gave me some really good advice on production questions too so I did that and then a couple of months later a thousand books were delivered to my front door (laughs) how do you distribute them all i i traveled a lot i was doing a lot of work for magazines at the time and so i would always bring a couple copies with me and you know if i was in chicago i would call anybody i knew in chicago and say what what are the best bookstores here and then i would go to the bookstore and ask to speak to the book buyer yeah and um i sold them mostly on consignment that way yeah, which meant that I never saw any money. From them. <laughs> yeah, did you did you keep good records? I thought so, but they never no, matched up with the bookstore's <laughs> records.
2: I want to ask you two questions in in relation to all this. The first one is, the photos in that book. It seems that today you're still almost making the same kinds of photos. Mm. What I love about them is that you really get a sense of how you see the world. There's a sense of humor to them and a sense of playfulness. There's also a bit of a dark quality to them. Were you always making those kinds of pictures or did they
0: slowly develop into, into your voice? I think something happened on that first road trip I did. Something gelled. And I think moving out to Scranton had something to do with it. I mean, the reason I moved out here was because New York was too stimulating and I had no mental space to process all of the things I was taking in. So it was kind of like a hermit's retreat Mm -hmm. as a place to process it all and then actually have a point of view on it. And something in that trip with the pictures, I think was the, yeah, something came together. Prior to that, were you
2: taking, um, uh, were you taking lots of different kinds of pictures? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Black and white color, of 35 millimeter, four by five. So
0: did you make a decision at one point to re- like really stick to one format? I think I got my first Hasselblad right before that trip. And before that I had I had played around with this camera called a Lubatel. It's a Russian made knockoff of a Roloflex mm-hmm. made out of plastic. I liked that you looked down into the camera mm-hmm. and into the viewfinder, like the glass plate Yeah, uh, and saw things backwards. I just got used to looking at the world that way. It was a, a real translation of the real world into an image mm-hmm. where if, like when you're looking through a 35 mm, millimeter or something with one eye, Basically, everything that you're seeing is the picture. But when you're looking down into a into this square, you're seeing a composition. I mean, obviously, a lot of photographers do that when they're looking with one eye through a mm-hmm. viewfinder. But um, something about the process of that yielded certain results that I really liked. Yeah, and it was always important for the images to have some kind of open quality. And I don't know if that had to do with the desire for things to last longer or if it's just more fun to look at an image that, that is open. Okay, I'm open-ended. Yeah, because you you can bring things to it. And then if you look at it a year later or a couple of years later, you bring something else to it. and So it kind of is everlasting that way.
2: So we we're just talking about Sunbird. So so around this time you start JNL books, mm-hmm. and that's your and that's the first publication. Mm-hmm. What were you trying to do with J? I mean, other than uh, get involved in bookmaking, obviously, what did you want
0: to do with JNL? We wanted to publish work that we liked that wasn't going to be published by anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so we started with artists and writers we knew. One of the one of our first books was called JNL Ill- Illustrated Number One. And it has uh, drawings by a bunch of different people and then writing by, I think, about 12 different authors.
2: So you just uh, reached out to artists you were interested in and went about it that way? Yeah, yeah. exactly. How did
0: the uh, the Ed Pinar books come about? Ed sent us some cold call submissions through email of drawings mm-hmm. that were really bad. <laughs> but... There was something about them that made me look twice and made me look him up and I don't remember what kind of website he had or or how I found out more information about him, but I found these videos that he had made with a friend in high school mm-hmm. they had a um in Johnstown, Pennsylvania they had a show on the on public access that mm-hmm. was incredible, really yeah,
2: you know I can get some of his early pictures. It's pretty amazing how he was, uh, the types of pictures that he was making at the time was pretty, is pretty amazing. There's one that sticks out of, uh, of a guy in the computer lab just turning around and it's like this blue, this blue wall and all of, you know, the computers lined up. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, it's pretty amazing that he thought that would be a picture so young.
0: If you look at these videos, you see they're they were pretty free spirits in mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Photography. I don't know. I never really talked to him about his roots that much, but anyway. So so I so I uh, I got I got back in touch with Ed, and then I think he was going to grad school at the time up in Detroit, mm-hmm. and we said let's make a book together. I I don't know what it's going to be, and he was about to move to Los Angeles, and so we ended up making making a book of the work he made in Los Angeles.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Huh.
0: That, that was um, Golden, Golden Palms. Palms. Yeah, Golden Palms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that how is that how book
2: projects often come about? Do you kind of see a sensibility that you like or that you respond to and then develop the project with the artist or with the photographer? Or do you come across work that's more that you see the potential for a book in?
0: Yeah, it's happened both ways. Both ways? Yeah. Some of the people you really... F- you feel like you you do it together fully from beginning to end and others are people you reach out to and because you like their work and or you like a body of work that you've seen and you want to make it into a book right i wanted to ask you about
2: uh the michael northrup work mm-hmm. how did that how did that come about i met michael
0: through i call him strobes that's his nickname strobes yes yeah, so, oh, yeah. or strobies <laughs> uhhuh i met strobies um through my friend Paul Sayre, who's a graphic designer. Paul designed our JNL logo. I also met my wife, Tamara, through Paul. She really? She was working for him. She, Tamara worked for Paul Sayre? Mm-hmm. Huh, okay. So this is a time in my life where I was in New York a lot, but I didn't have an office. And some of my friends did, so I would spend some days just sort of visiting all of my friends in their offices, uh-huh. drinking free coffee and... <laughs> so paul had lived in baltimore and um he knew Mm strobys and knew that he had this great body of work from the 70s and 80s and he introduced us and said you should go down and take a look at it so i went down to baltimore and spent a couple of days with him looking at all of his contact sheets from like 1971 to 2000 or whatever Mm -hmm. and it was so intense an experience um because the pictures, I think, are so evocative. They're so full of these lives of people in these small towns in the United States who were all living pretty hard and also reproducing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Strobes was in the middle of it all with his camera. And he told me there were so many stories in all those pictures. And a lot of the people are dead now or died young or died in Vietnam or whatever. It was so intense, I remember on my drive back home afterward, I had to pull over on the highway and, and cry.
2: So you're getting involved in these projects with, with JNL now. Are you still traveling a lot at this time? We're talking really? early 2000s. Is this early 2000s now? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was traveling a lot then. Traveling yeah. a lot, doing your own, taking your own pictures and doing these books. Also doing jobs for magazines. and.
0: Right, that was the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Doing jobs for magazines, how those came about. When I quit my design job, I was trying to figure out how to make money just with photos. So the first people I approached were publishers to do to have my work on book covers for novels and things. Um, There was a lot of photography used on book covers at the time. I would basically go to bookstores, find the books that I loved, the covers, and then look and see who designed them. And then I would write letters to those designers. And then eventually get a meeting with them and show them pictures. Mm -hmm. So the first book cover, I think, was for Archie Ferguson, who worked up at Knopf. He used a picture of uh, some hunters that I'd taken for a book cover. And then he introduced me to some other people. So it, it's, I try to give this advice to younger photographers when they want to get work, which is not to just buy a mailing list and send like 5,000 postcards out, but to be really specific to contacting people whose work you admire. Right. Designers or art directors. Um, cause there's a better chance that you'll have a good connection with them, that they'll understand your work and that you'll like the way that they use your work. So, um, my first magazine assignment came totally randomly from life magazine and they sent me down to Miami to photograph these houses built on stilts in Biscayne Bay. You still do that today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not as many as I used to. That industry has changed. What else do you do now to earn a living? I give lectures. I do workshops sell prints, do some design, designed a cookbook last year with Tamara, photographed. It's pretty random. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. As a freelancer, it's always like that. Every year, like your major source of income is is different. Right. You look back at your 1099s and see like, oh, the New York Times supported me last year. <laughs> oh, Martha Stewart supported me one year. <laughs> or um, or your Guggenheim Fellowship supports you one year. So it's every year it's different. In moving to Scranton, aside from
2: getting away from the noise of of New York, were you thinking also about the lifestyle that you wanted to live and keeping expenses lower? And mm-hmm. was that was that part of the rationale of moving out here?
0: Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I've always loved Lee Friedlander's pictures, but I've also always loved the idea of him, whatever that is, in my head. I mean, however accurate that is, of the photographer who roams, wanders that idea is very appealing to me
2: he's given uh, so few interviews you don't i don't really know that much about his personal life
0: yeah me neither i think for a lot of influences it's like the idea of a person that you have in your head is is the, the thing that you're influenced by right and it might not be true or it might not be you know true to their life you about the website how did you develop that an old girlfriend Benedict she gave me Jason as a present once (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) so it felt weird to me at the time because .com is like dot commercial and I didn't want this thing to be like a, a portfolio like give me a job or something so there was a website that I'd found at the time that you, that's still around. It's called Superbad, okay. Superbad.com, and it was this infinite labyrinth of absurdity and nonsense with no <laughs> credits anywhere. Like who made this? And it's just endless clicking, and I loved it. So that was kind of the biggest influence on on my website. I wanted to a similar feel, yeah, infinite labyrinth. And you could never find your way back to a page that you remembered. Huh. That was the first iteration. Mm-hmm. And it's changed over the years, different times. You know, when I've been hard up for money, I've made it more like, give me work. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and then I've pulled back. And at the moment, it's somewhere in between those things. Or it's all of them mixed together somehow. You did it all yourself?
2: Mm-hmm. All the design, all the...
0: Yeah, some of those pages are really old now.
2: <laughs> really? Yeah. As much as you browse around, you you seldom come across more creative types of sites like that. Where you can kind of get lost and, and and move around, and yet it's still informative. Like it still does what it needs to do in terms of you know if a, if an editor wanted to
0: see something or you know commission work
2: or books you've done.
0: No, it's great. Yeah, I don't have any of the pictures from the books on the site. I put work on there that works in that format, online, digital fast heavy clicking <laughs> mm-hmm. i think that the internet is built for speed yeah and there's no use trying to fight that it's just innate that's how we use it we consume right. things really fast and move through it so there's certain work that i don't put up there at all that is that works better in books
2: there's a quality in the actual site itself i mean you're talking about the kind of uh you know the absurdity and the the nonsense of, of that site but it seems like there's almost like, a, there's a similar quality to the site as in the work also. Like again, going back to this sense of humor and playfulness. hmm And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that in terms of how you
0: think about that in terms of your work and the work that you aspire to, the work mm-hmm. that you publish. Well, I went through a phase of reading a bunch of Russian authors who used absurdity and humor to um, somehow process very mundane things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm projecting onto them, but it seemed like those like appreciation of the absurd and and humor were tools mm-hmm. to get through tough times in life or something. And I've definitely used that in the past before. Yeah, but I also love it when somebody really smart and is talking about something very heavy or serious, but they use humor as part of it. I just think there's always a place for it right and it's hard to be a psychoanalyst about on myself right (laughs) i don't really i'm not a very good analyst uh
2: but it always is something that you try and like infuse in the work whether like if you're working on a book
0: well getting the tone right is 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 a challenge often it's it's harder for me with words because i feel like with images i've i've come to a voice that has a tone that feels right Mm -hmm. sometimes i think about it as having a a a right balance of um, logic and emotion like if it's too much on the the clever side it doesn't work and if it's too much on the sentimental side it doesn't work and there's somewhere in between that it needs to fall and humor plays a role in that somehow Mm -hmm. Uh, but the trick is getting the voice of the thing right
2: and that just through kind of working,
0: like working through it. Mm-hmm. And maybe showing it to some people you trust who know you, who know you well. I mean, often I tell people that when they're looking through something that's in progress to tell me when they wince, mm-hmm. or when they cringe, because mm-hmm. I want to know those moments. And sometimes yeah. you want to keep it awkward, but sometimes it's just that it's not right yet. that book to me was about evolution mostly mm-hmm. like how you start to see something and then that affects what you, what you're going to see next. And then what, what you see there is going to affect the next thing that you see. Basically whatever's in the back of your mind is, is, um, is helping to focus your attention on something in the world. And that's constantly changing. I mean, if, if you and I were to go outside right now and make pictures, we would We'd be looking at the same place, but we would make really different images, right? Depending on whatever we're thinking about and whatever our life experience is, and everything. So, that book was it was a was a kind of a controlled experiment in that, starting with these found photos and seeing where they would lead in a direction, and then halfway through the book, kind of stopping, starting again, and it, it went off in a different path. That was the first book that you worked on
2: with uh, Lorenzo Derrita. That's right. What was that like working with him? What was the uh
0: what was the dynamic? I really love working with him. He has one quality about him which is that he keeps things very open until the last possible minute. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh so I love making books that way because you're open to finding new things that fit in up until the, the moment you finally go to press. Mm-hmm. And so he played a few different roles in the mushroom collector. One was keeping that quality in the air until we finalized everything. Mm -hmm. And then he had some really good specific pieces of advice with things. I mean, for example, I remember one of my first ideas was to have all of the mushrooms pictures in a grid at the beginning of the book. And then, so it was very linear, like, okay, this is where it started and then move on through how the pictures evolved. Yeah. And he's the one who suggested to scatter the mushroom pictures throughout the book as this kind of backbeat that you would keep coming back to. And so he just, it it's editors, good editors are are really great for seeing the work from the reader's point of view. Because mm-hmm. there's a story that's in your head, you made all of the work, but um, the editor needs to, to see how it is communicated through the book.
2: Once the book was published... And you were getting it out was the first time where you started to do exhibitions in ways that were more than just exhibitions. There were more creative kind of ways of presenting the work.
0: Yeah, I that think, was the first time. Yeah, I think the the, the month long storefront we did in Amsterdam was probably the first version of that. And then the other events kind of spawned from that. Yeah, I mean the first one, he said he wanted to bring the book out in Amsterdam and and there was some space near his office that was for rent. And he said, maybe we could rent this space out. And it was a storefront space for some uh, clothes designer. So we made it into a storefront, basically, into a a weird hybrid of, of a store, a bar, and w- what we imagined this anonymous mushroom collector's workspace looked like. Mm-hmm. And then we filled it with all of these items that, where it had something to do with the making of the book from contact sheets or polaroids or sculptures or typewriters and um people didn't really know what it was and and had to figure it out by coming in and going through all of the stuff yeah yeah and that led to the next thing so then some friends who had a basement space in new york asked me to do something dexter sinister and since it was a basement with no windows, we decided to make a dark room. And then this idea of her performance came out of that.
2: I guess the Hotel Oracle exhibits were, I mean, once you started doing the mushroom collector ones,
0: you had that in mind. And Well, Lorenzo and I were talking about how to bring that book out. And we were both talking about George Parekh at some point in our conversation. Mm-hmm. And Parekh had written a, an essay about the perfect Parisian apartment. And it was like every... Every room was in a different neighborhood, yeah, And the ideal place for that, so like the living room was on the second floor overlooking a park. The kitchen was on the first floor next to a grocery spot, and anyway, yeah, uh, so we thought about the hotel Oracle being an actual place, but it was scattered all over the world. Mm. so the room was in new york the the uh the game room was in Tokyo. What else was there? The shuttle van was in Philadelphia. Um the pool was in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. et cetera. I wasn't able to visit any of them, but just by
2: uh look like looking through some of the images it looked really great. Yeah, it was fun. So other than um other than the traveling to Joe Haven on assignment, mm-hmm. <laughs> what else are you working on now?
0: Well I had this Guggenheim Fellowship last year and so I made a lot of work on the theme of madness. And I'm working through that at the moment. I'm at that phase we, we talked about earlier in this interview of um, having collected a lot of work and now finding a point of view through it. How are you collecting work? Uh, well, I was, you you just put an idea into the back of your head and then you live your life and then you see things. Mm-hmm. It's like putting a certain filter on your glasses. So I kind of just put that filter in the back of my head for a couple of years of of madness and then ended up finding a couple of entry points into it
2: i remember you mentioned uh, i think it was the
0: workshop where you mentioned um making pilgrimages yeah there's a whole section of the work that's actual locations somehow related to madness i mean the hotel the hotel room where William burroughs wrote uh, naked lunch in tangier or the room Vincent van Gogh lived in in, uh, South of France and then in, in an institution when he made a lot of his paintings, mm-hmm. but then mixing those in with, with, I, th- I think what I want to happen when you read this book is you, the word madness is so see all of these, all of these motifs start to relate to each other. As you said, even going back to Sunbird or something, um, there's always these different levels of ambiguity that I'm interested in for whatever reason. And especially with things like, well, for example, with photographs, there's very specific, but they're very ambiguous at the same time.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And this, this word madness is, is exactly that. It's so subjective. Um, It's based on the culture, the time period, whatever is considered normal uh, or not. And, so I think the, the the part of madness that I ended up becoming interested in was is that all around that board that gray border line and it's a, it's a kind of a functional madness as well. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that was great. All right. That was my conversation with photographer and publisher Jason Fulford that we recorded in the Electric City, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Magic Hour is produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and Michelle Macklin, and edited by Crystal Duhem. Special thanks to Lenny Pierre-Ramos. For more information on Magic Hour, along with visuals and works that are mentioned in the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org. Leave us a review on iTunes too, we'd really appreciate it. Join me next time when I sit down with Magnum photographer David Allen Harvey, who wears a few different hats. He's a photographer first, but is also a publisher, editor, teacher, and mentor to many emerging photographers. We'll be airing that conversation in two weeks, so listen then.